And a very warm welcome back to Solidarity Breakfast. A left response to the major developments in capitalism. What they trade in is not wheat. They trade in famine. A little dose of revolutionary optimism. I think it's really important to sort of express solidarity globally. It really is a deal by corporations for corporations. The union forever defending our rights down with the black leg. Do you think the ABC's left wing? Don't listen to this program. Solidarity Breakfast, 7.30 to 9am Saturdays, 3CR, 8.55am, streaming and 3CR digital, podcast or audio on demand. And of course, the website, solidaritybreakfast.org.au. Solidarity forever! And a very good morning to listeners. It's a fresh morning and it's looking like a good day. This is Lalitha Chalaya here, taking you through to 9am, and we have some interesting issues to discuss. And first up, we have Michael Moore from the the Public Health Association of Australia, in short, PHAA, and he's the CEO of this organisation. Michael is on online, and we will start the interview straight away. Good morning, Michael. Yeah, good morning, Lali. Good to be with you. Thank you so much for agreeing to talk to 3CA and so on that your breakfast. And I think this, this health issue, which is what we're going to talk about, is a major issue, um, especially when this morning I heard that the negotiations between the states and the federal government fell through in relation to tax sharing and all the schemes that, that uh, my, uh, Turnbull was talking about. Now, your angle on this, there are two angles you're coming in at. One is um, the funding, and the other one is um, the preventative aspect of health. Now, I'm just wondering, maybe we should start with the funding topic. What would you prefer? I think that's uh, fine, and when we are talking funding, we constantly hear people talking about uh, the fact that our health budgets are blowing out, that uh, we're never going to have enough money to be able to reach the level of care that we should be taking in terms of uh, health. And this is really managed somehow or another to get a grip when the reality is just not the, is just not the same. We do know there are some significant issues coming up. The ageing of the population is certainly very important uh, and new technologies will be very important. But the reality is that we have seen federal budgets either staying uh, uh, under CPI or um, at uh, um, even uh, reducing over the uh, last five or six years. The real problem, of course, uh, is that at the same time we've seen the cuts to taxation. So, of course, there's going to be an issue about how much money is coming in and how much money is going to be available to spend on health care. Mm. This issue of health, funding health care has been a massive pro, um, issue for many, many, many years, whether it's a Labour Party or whether it's a Liberal Party, regardless of who's in power, it's been always a problem. And they always attribute it to the ageing population and how much extra dollars we need to fund it. At the same token, they also are shifting the burden to the private sector and the users' pockets. And that is the main issue here. You know, people go for a, a procedure and you find that they have to end up paying a big gap. And this, this whole juggling of private public health um, mix is uh, very problematic for the user, users, for example. And I know that people complain about it. And, you know, for yourself, how healthy is that mix of public 
a private um, style of managing the health budget? Look, I personally, um, our association doesn't really have a problem with the fact that we do have a mix between public and private. We think in some ways that enhances our public health system. But we do have a problem with the way it's done in many situations. So uh, what we have to do is make sure that our public health system has is strong enough to be able to look after uh, anybody who wants to be, uh, who needs to have health care, health treatment, because uh, in the end, uh, we see that uh, health is a human right, that uh, anybody should be able to get appropriate treatment for their uh, condition. So where people choose to go into the private system is because they want to be able to um, have treatment that's done early, that they want to be very selective about their particular medical practitioner, uh, and uh, that also helps keep the private, uh, helps keep the public system, if you like, on a, on its toes. Where the system is falling down in the most significant way at the moment is that the taxpayers are subsidising that choice. So when you allow by about six billion dollars, uh, and by the way that's growing, we expect it to be about ten billion dollars uh, by the end of the decade. So what we what we have is a situation where ordinary taxpayers who can't afford private health insurance are effectively subsidising those who can afford. And uh, you know this is a, what I've described uh, as Robin Hood in reverse. This is actually taking money uh, from the less wealthy and putting it into the hands of uh, of the wealthier elements in our community. And we just think that's wrong. Also, the public health um, insurance, not public, sorry, the private health insurance companies tend to raise a premium which makes it unaffordable for, for the average person or person who has an average age, um, salary to um, afford the, the private health insurance. And it seems to be a lot of quirks, like, you know, when you pay Medicare levy and then you pay private insurance, it adds up in the budget for most people who are trying to balance their budget. And this mix tends to put more pressure on, on the, the middle class or even the lower middle class, if you like, if you want to segregate a bit more. Um, financially speaking, do you think private health insurance does put pressure on people? Oh, I think there's no question it does put pressure on, uh, on people. Um, there's a huge encouragement uh, to take out uh, private health insurance. The governments have argued, and conservative governments in particular have argued, that the subsidy for the private health insurance is what encourages people to take out private health insurance. The reality, of course, is that those that the growing area of people who take out private health insurance are those who are younger because they've got a guarantee of a much lower price of uh, health insurance if they take it out younger. Mm. And that's probably had a much greater impact than, uh, than the subsidy itself. I suppose that in the situation we are now, and Richard Di Natale pointed this out, uh, that uh, if we suddenly moved and took the six billion dollars out, that uh, that would the people who are taking out private health insurance would probably feel that very strongly and would probably withdraw. So it would have to be a graded process um, over the next few years, and that's just sensible. That's just a sensible politics of dealing with the situation as to where we are where we are now. So I think there's a the second element that you raised is about the gap payment. The gap payment uh, is really largely around what the 
practitioners are able to charge because people choose probably by reputation, not necessarily by skill, um, particular um, orthopaedic surgeons or, or cardiovascular surgeons or whoever uh, to uh, take care of their operations. So the hospital's paid for and the specialist is subsidised uh, to a particular point. But that's where the gap often comes in and uh, and that's where the uh, people who do have private health insurance really feel the, uh, really feel the impact. Hmm. And that impact can be thousands of dollars. <coughs> Excuse me. Um, I'm not sure if you if you want to answer the next question I wanted to put to you. Um, I feel that that the question of healthcare has been highly politicised and used in terms of elections, in particular, for by various parties to gain momentum. Uh, what does your association think about that? Uh, look, I'll give a personal answer on that one if I can, sure. uh, Lady. <coughs> um, I was a health minister in the ACT. I was in the unusual position of being an independent member. In fact, Australia's first independent uh, minister. So I worked within a Liberal government, but I sit pretty much in the uh, in the middle um, of politics. And I watch both sides play with the health area uh, in politics. It is a one of the most significant issues in politics. It suits Labor uh, to uh, point out the, uh, the problems that the Liberals have with health. Uh, it suits uh, the Liberal Party to try and work on the economic aspects and uh, and that's really how the community sees their strengths and weaknesses, if I can sum it up mm. uh, in, in very broad generalisation. Um, so one of the things that we've seen is Labor making major, major inroads back in the days of Whitlam when uh, Medicare was introduced, when we got a universal healthcare system we made sure that everybody could uh, um, go to the doctor or go to the hospital and uh, have the treatment they needed when they needed it. Uh, this is something that is that many liberals feel uncomfortable with because they feel that there should be an element of personal responsibility and personal choice uh, here. And so the blend, unfortunately, sort of continues the debate. Um, however, I think the blend. I still think the blend. Does have a, does have a place provided um, ordinary people who need treatment can get the uh, treatment at the highest possible level when they need that treatment, and that's that means, of course, instead of using money to determine who goes first, we use waiting lists and we use the uh, person's condition as to who goes first. Mm. But the problem with that is that the too many. Um, conditions, so to speak, they classify as non-urgent uh, conditions. So that then creates another priority list. So it, it confuses the whole issue. Like if someone has a tumor as benign compared to someone who's got uh, tumors large and benign or small and benign. So it all sort of gets confused in the mix and people get, you know, um, uh, I think put off by the system the way it works. For example, if I want to have a colonoscopy, there's a, a waiting list of a year before I can get in. Uh, and yet, if I go private and I pay 100 bucks, while well, Medicare subsidizes it, um, I pay maybe 100 bucks or whatever to to get the procedure. So there's the there's another model in there where you mix the private and the public to advantage the people. So it's 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 quite a. a, a 
a nightmare when you go in there and, you, and you're daunt, it's daunting to face a system that says, well, you've got to wait a year to get this procedure done. And you're wondering, oh, what's going to happen to my health in that one year while I'm waiting? And yet um, medical analysis would argue that the, it is okay for you to wait that year. Mm. However, um, everybody knows that, they, that um, medical analysis is uh, not absolutely 100% that's right. a- accurate, and that's why they, <laughs> and that's why they uh, spend the money. What we've been talking about, though, Lally, is completely in the area of expenditure and treatment. Mm. Um, what uh, our organisation emphasises is, yes, we believe it's incredibly important and fundamental that we have a universal healthcare system. If people aren't getting that treatment quickly enough, then actually that's a problem with the um, with the funding of the public system, mm. not not that we've got a public private um, mix. mix. So and certainly you, a year's wait for for any of that style of treatment mm. is uh, is um, something that uh, we would all need to question. But but on the other hand, we also need to make sure there's a emphasis on both primary health care yes. and prevention. And this week we've seen the uh, Prime Minister and the Health Minister announced a, tri- a change and trial primary health care to get better uh, conditions there, um, but they failed to add in the preventive element of it. Yes, that's the next um, major topic I want to come to um, in this discussion. But before I do that, um, quickly, if, uh, if anyone who's just tuned in, you are tuned in to Solidarity Breakfast, 3CR, 855 on your AM dial. And we are talking to Michael Moore, the CEO of Public Health Association of Australia, about the health system and the hot debates that's in the um, media at the moment. Okay, Michael, the, the key thing about this preventive model, I, I, this is one of my favorite topics, being a nurse. I, you know, I've, been work, I've been a nurse for 40 years and I've worked in both areas. The, the biggest public health changes in society has happened when clean water was supplied and also the, the immunization program. So they are the big blocks that, that the, uh, the government likes to focus on. And yet obesity and all the metabolic, metabolic syndrome, as they call it, uh, it's obesity, high blood pressure, um, high cholesterol, diabetes, all these things are there. Now, currently the whole health model in Australia, and for that matter most countries, is based on a treatment model, not a preventive model. I'm just wondering what is, is it that your association defines as preventive um, model? Well, first of all, um, there are, um, I think, first of all, we need to take into account that uh, everything we do is underlined by social determinants of health. So, yes, right. clean water and sanitation, immunisation, absolutely critical, but uh, your postcode, where you live, uh, um, your socioeconomic status are fundamental in terms of health, and that's the yes. same right across right across the world. As other you would know, and the work yes. of Sir Michael Marmot in particular, mm. and the World uh, Health Organization's Commission on Social Determinants of Health yes. was uh, really brought uh, brought this out. So we keep uh, that in in perspective. But it's a very broad range of things we do in terms of uh, health, and um, I'm about to become president of the World Federation of Public Health Associations. We've developed, with the World Health Organization, a global charter for the public's health. And that global charter says that we need three elements, and it's protection, prevention, and promotion. 
So those three elements are the way we see uh, making people healthier. And uh, I think the uh, in one of the most important examples you gave, clean water sanitation immunisation, but, you know, look at seatbelts. Uh, well, not seatbelts, road trauma, how we've, we now have the same level, not per capita, but the same level of uh, road-related um, um, death and, uh, and injury as we had in the 1930s. And it's not one thing. It's a whole run of things. It's mm. about, yes, seatbelts, but it was about speed. It's about alcohol. It's about better cars. It's, you know, it's a very big range of things. It's, it's about drugs. It's about the fact that why are people, so many people driving cars for a start? <laughs> Indeed. And, and, but even with all the extra people driving cars, we're still at the same levels as the 1930s. So, you know, it's really a big success story. And, uh, and similarly with tobacco. Mm-hmm. It's not one thing. It was about price, about taxa- you know, taxation price. It was about um, not smoking in particular environments, so it's regulation. And, uh, and then also about health promotion, about people understanding uh, what's going on. Now, the trouble is we haven't applied this to the area of obesity. So when the government came out this week and said, what we're going to do is we're going to change the way we do our uh, general practice treatment, from episodic treatment, you know, coming in and, uh, and getting paid for a particular uh, item number because you've uh, because you've uh, got a cold works very well under those circumstances. But when you have chronic disease, constantly uh, repeating, and particularly multiple chronic disease, somebody, for example, with diabetes and arthritis, mm. these these are much more difficult, and they need a team to treat them. So what the government has done is really good. But they've not been comprehensive in their approach. So what they've failed to do is say, let's actually look at the cause of the cause of the cause and let's go back. And we know (laughs) that about 80% of the situation is about obesity. Hmm. And uh, it used to be very much about uh, smoking. Smoking is still a very big factor in there. And if you combine obesity and smoking, then we really have an increased problem. So So what we see is there are things government can do, and uh, but they are hard political decisions. Uh, so the first one, and the example we've uh, given recently, is taxing sugary soft drinks. And and why do you say tax sugary soft drinks? Because that's very doable. Really, in the long run, we would like to see a price around uh, a price signal around junk food. Um, then we have to run serious health promotion campaigns about how people should eat. We have the evidence for it very clearly in the Australian Dietary Guidelines. And for people who want to, you know, they're about uh, 1,200 pages or something, but the Australian Dietary Guidelines also has an easy-to-use manual, the guide, and they call it the Guide to Healthy Eating. It's, it's on the, uh, the federal government's website. But we're not promoting it enough. So, you know, it takes that sort of process and then there's the element of, uh, of physical exercise and how we change the way uh, the way people move all these things have to be done together in a comprehensive way and it takes money and when we're some of it takes money anyway some of the regulation doesn't of course but, but the money but the money at the moment we're talking about two percent of our health budget gets spent on uh, on prevention that's mm. The average over the last five or six years, and that speaks uh, volumes, doesn't it? The fact it, that they spent two percent really says it. Yes, 
Um, I want to throw a curly one at you. Um, the the issue about taxing um, sugar drinks and all that, that you face a huge uh, political backlash from the food industry, food industry is one. The other point is, in terms of um, telling people how to eat or promoting and informing people to make healthy choices, also involves personal choice as such. Now, there are issues within there that are uh, not seen or, or very much hidden, that's where people have um, unstable work, contract work, where they have to work overtime, they come back home completely stressed. Really, they don't have time to cook. Even if they have the healthiest um, food choices in their fridge, they had gone shopping over the weekend. The fact is, they're so, so tired, they can't cook. I know from personal experience, it's happened to me in the past, and you, you tend to stop buying, buy a takeaway, which is not the healthiest thing. And you always go for junk food when you're stressed, when you're so pushed. Um, in, as, this, this is, I'm talking about social determinants of health. Homelessness, you've got uh, people who, um, you know, don't have proper education, and you, you know all the elements of social determinants of, um, the social, uh, the sort of determinants of health. It, is a broader picture that I find is totally missed in the strategies that are proposed by the government at the moment. Yes, they, they are doing the, the, the basic stuff, as you mentioned, some positive things, but they have not yet answered the harder question of the social determinants of health, which is I find really important because I work in the Aboriginal area. You know, that, that is the mental health issue. For example, 2010, we had epidemic of depression, and yet mental health funding has been cut back. So it, it raises a lot of questions for me. And, and I agree. Um, when I was, though, I think we need to give in perspective a report that's just come out from the Lancet Commission just this week on obesity. And it's very interesting that um, the countries with the highest obesity in that report, and I assume they're looking at the larger, larger countries, um, US, Canada, Australia, New Zealand, the United Kingdom, you know, these uh, all the Anglo-Saxon uh, countries that yes. have a major problem. Now, it's not as though in uh, Italy and uh, the Scandinavian countries in the Netherlands that they don't have shift workers, that they don't have all the same issues that we're talking about. Uh, but there are, there are significant differences. So uh, I think there are still things that we... There's no doubt there are still things that we can do, we can manage... Um, but we have to keep in mind the very things that you raise um, because they are they are very important. But uh, we had a similar argument around tobacco. And remember, when the price of tobacco goes up, those who can least afford it, mm. uh, who still remain the smokers, are the ones, if you like, who suffer most because they're using their money to buy cigarettes. But on the other hand, actually, they also their health is the higher priority. And if they uh, are smoking, for lots of reasons, we understand it, um, then they need to also be encouraged because that is still a matter of personal choice in the in the final analysis, and it should be. But we can um, set the environment to make sure that that the healthier choice is the easier choice, and that's really what we're talking about. Mm. Because at the moment, the environment is the uh, the um, unhealthy choice is the easiest choice, as you described. You know, one of the first things that a government ought to do, and it doesn't cost anything, is to...
to uh, regulate the marketing of junk food. Yes. Particularly the marketing of junk food to Ad- children. Advertising jumped to my mind when you were talking there. Yeah. <laughs> the yeah. way they push it, not only kids, in teenagers too. It's easy to just pick up you know, a bag of chips as opposed to a decent meal, a holistic, balanced meal, and that's always the thing. But it's also about informed choice. People need to be informed about choices and the way um, we promote that this, the elements of the diet as a balance. It's a simple thing. It's not very hard, really, but it's complicated by all the elements we've discussed. But, Michael, thank you so much for being available so early in the morning. And <laughs> talking about such an important issue, which is the other side of all the political shenanigans been going on. Um, My pleasure, Ali. Yeah, Thank but, you for the opportunity. Uh, it's just really good. But what I would like is perhaps when you become the president of the, is it an international? Uh, it's the World, the World Federation of Public Health Associations in May. Yes, we would like an international perspective on this, and hopefully we'll catch up with you and you won't change your mobile phone number. I would be delighted and I won't be changing my phone. (laughs) Thank you so much, Michael. Okay, Okay, bye. 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 That was Michael Moore, who is the CEO of the Public Health Association of Australia and and with all those credentials behind his name. So that was um, the other aspect of the discussion on health, health budget, how it's used, um, how the polit- politicians tend to focus on the dollar science as opposed to the real health of the people on the ground. The issues for, for listeners to think about and make up your own minds, obviously, and give us feedback. But this is a, a very important discussion because health involves every single person in this world. And we know that there has been all sorts of fiddling on the edges to try and so-called balance a budget while they having doubled the defense budget, which now means more than 50% of our GDP goes to defense, that is the industry of destruction, as opposed to 2% um, to preventative health. Something for us to seriously think about in the upcoming elections and seriously think about what is it that we want this government to do and where do we want them to focus on in terms of what they they were apparently supposed to do, that is serve the people. And and we know that is not exactly what's happening. Okay, let's go to an announcement, and we'll come back to another aspect of health as well. Um, It's an interview with uh, Craig McGregor, who is the secretary of VAPA, the Victorian um, Association of um, Allied Health Professionals. So, two announcements. Hi, I'm Rod Quantock and you're listening to Fill in the Dots, you know who you're listening to Why do I have to tell you who you're listening to? You know who you're listening to You're listening to, yes, Fill in the Dots 3CR Community Radio, you got it right, you've won a giraffe. Uh, we're at 855am, we're on digital radio and streaming at 3cr.org.au. 3CR has been making trouble since 1976 and occasionally I've been part of the trouble that's been made. It's a vital part of our uh, media landscape and I'd encourage you to get a hacksaw, an oxyacetylene torch and go up to the Dandenongs and, and bring down all those broadcast towers that aren't 3CR's towers And let's make 3CR the only source of information to an information-starved, dumbed-down Australian community. Written, authorised and spoken by Neil Mitchell. 
new illustrated book by Alina and Bruce MacDonald stars our beloved comrade Bill Della as the protagonist in a journey that stems from Ballarat to Humpty Doo and features all the lefty issues that were dear to Bill's big heart. 3CR has a few precious copies of this beautiful book for sale for $20 plus $5 postage. All proceeds will go to the Solidarity Breakfast Program's Radiothon Fund. You can buy it online at the 3CR shop. Go to the 3CR website, 3cr.org.au, or pick up your copy at the station. Yes, and welcome back to Solidarity Breakfast on 3CR, 855 on your AM dial. And next up, we have an interview I did with um, Craig McGregor, who's the secretary of BAPA, a couple of days ago. And he's talking about the negotiations they are having with the employers in relation to the EBA. And that should be interesting because health professionals are constantly struggling with the recognition and the respect they deserve. So here we go. This is an interview with Craig McGregor, Secretary of the Victorian Allied Health Professionals Association. Craig is a qualified radiographer and he became Secretary of VAPA in 2012. VAPA has uh, launched a campaign around the EBA and it's called Code Blue and we shall talk to Craig about this campaign. Welcome to 3CR, Craig. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk to uh, 3CR. No worries. Thanks for having me, Louisa. Okay, now, you guys have had a great victory recently, and I believe it's to do with Code Blue. Tell us all about it. Well, in terms of victories, they're hard to come by. I um, know. <laughs> <laughs> We've been campaigning for a long time around the Code Blue campaign, which is effectively our, our public sector negotiation for a new enterprise agreement for our members. Um, well, in fact, for all allied health professionals in the public sector in Victoria. And there's about 8,000 of them, so it's a, it's a big agreement. Um, and, and we've had some uh, success, um, but in terms of wages and the classification structure, we have a way to go yet. So, yeah, a lot of, a lot of work to do. Okay. So what was it that triggered this whole thing in terms of you know, bringing it to a head? You went to the commission, you had a big victory result over Facebook. No, well, no, no, we we haven't. The AMBOs, of course, the AEAV, through Steve McGee, have had a terrific victory, um, which they got the results of yesterday, and, and hopefully that bodes very well for the public sector health in Victoria more broadly. But um, certainly we haven't had a, a wage outcome as yet, but I do think Danny Hill and, and Steve McGee have been doing a terrific job for the, okay. uh, the AMBOs. So I've been, I've been a little bit confused. I thought, yes, they want something. So tell me a bit more details about what Code Blue is about. Well, we're calling it Code Blue basically on the, on the back of the, the AMBOS campaign that they ran, which they called Code Red, which was very successful for them, particularly in the media. And you know, given the industrial framework we operate within these days, it's, it's pretty much the media or nothing. You know, in, in health, industrial action is basically prohibited by law. Um, and so we thought, why reinvent the wheel? Let's let's borrow from them. It also fits into our colour scheme. We use blue, and code blue is a medical emergency. So it's really for us about uh, reviving public health. And and really, that aspect of the public health and the reviving public health is at the centre of the campaign because for us, it's not just about wages and conditions. It's broader than that, and I think unions have an obligation to engage politically in a in a broader way. Um, and so you know, for us. 
It's really about making the value of public health and public ownership of essential services, um, you know, front and centre of any any political campaign that the union runs. Mm. Okay, that's interesting you say that um, uh, industrial actions not allowed in the health sector because being a nurse and having been through the strike in 86, I know that the strike clause was inserted into the Nurses' Award for decades and it was removed in 83. It's only after that uh, that clause was removed that the nurses were able to go on strike in 85 and 86. So is it that it is inserted in your award or your EBA? How's, how does that present itself? Well, uh, there's been significant changes in the legislation. Yep. You know, so if you put part of the population at risk, uh, they can, the Fair Work Commission can terminate uh, your industrial action and in fact can terminate your bargaining period and arbitrate an outcome for you, which is completely disempowering for the members. So it's really, it's about the legislation and, and the way the Fair Work Commission works uh, in the contemporary environment. It's certainly not like it was in the 80s, in fact, as I'm sure you're aware, if you look at the stats of industrial action, we're at an all-time low now. Unions just simply don't go out. And, and we've seen the federal government doing all they can to ramp up penalties, not just for unions, but for individuals, to make sure people don't have the courage to go out on strike. Speaking of which, it was great to see Mia and, and the Fairfax journos yes. and their colleagues go out on a wildcat strike. You know, it's mm-hmm. fantastic when people take that kind of lead. Yes, I mean, it, it's that momentum we need, isn't it? Someone has to, to, to trigger it. And if all trade unions start mobilizing around even one thing, like the journals, for example, if all trade unions go out, the government don't have a leg to stand on, really, because I mean, trade unions aren't just the officials. It's, it's the people who are members. Like, for example, the nurses' union's got 70,000 members. Imagine if 70,000 of them walked out. They'd be in deep trouble, wouldn't they? Oh, absolutely. You know, and political power is always going to triumph over your legal framework. There's no doubt about that. Mm. But you need to be in a position where you're organised and, and you've got a really solid political grounding to make that happen. And as you say, not just amongst the officials of the union, but, you know, it's got to be deep within the, the membership and the culture of the union. Okay. And so that's something we're really working to build at Barber. Um, we're really working to build this culture of um, political activism and you know, a broader political understanding rather than any reliance on, you know, the legal framework. So mm. That's a mistake. Very sensible strategy. Now, the, the other thing is, so the, the Code Blue campaign is going on. Um, how are the members responding to that? Well, they're responding well. Um, it, it's, for us, we're coming from a long way back. We've had, you know, historically, as a branch of the HSU, We've had lots of problems, and Kathy Jackson, as your listeners may or may not know, was the secretary of, of um, the, you know, the HSU branch number three for a long time. And as a member of that branch, I felt very disempowered. And so we're overcoming this, this historic um, practice of basically going to the commission and seeking arbitrated outcomes. So, yeah, it, it's a low base um, and, and we're working hard to activate the members, and they are really coming around. So it's it's been... Tremendous to see where we've gone in, and community health is a great example. We increased our density from 15% to 45% in uh, a year-long or well, a year-and-a-half campaign, mm-hmm. and we got a terrific outcome. So it was all about getting out there, doing the hard slog on the ground. It, it's absolutely possible, but it takes you know, incredible amounts of dedication and, and work. So, you know, I mean, people tell us, you know, allied health professionals are a conservative group. It's just not true. Hmm. Any group in society, if you run the arguments by them, if you have the discussions, 
they will see, you know, your argument, your position, and a, a large swathe of members will come on board. You know, and we see it happening. Yep, it's also understanding their rights and the entitlements and so on, and their power. Realizing that power is the, the key thing. Is that I remember when we were in the in the eighty six strikes. You know, we had members joining hand over fist. So it's it's like a cash twenty two, and you can't take action because of all these restrictions, legal restrictions. And yet, it is at that time that members want to join because they can see the trade unions are really doing something concrete, and they can feel it and sense it. So, yep, I want to join. You know, we had the most conservativeness join at that time. Um, so yeah. you guys are like in a between a rock and a hard place, really, isn't it? Well, it's not really the way I see it. I, it. It's definitely a difficult place at the moment industrially, but I, I think we're working in the right direction. And you know, once uh, some of the other health unions get active on the ground in terms of their campaign, because the nurses' agreement expires at the end of March, the mental health agreement expires at the end of March, and then the medical scientists' agreement expires at the end of October, um, and then there's the broader Allied Health Agreement, which expired already, 31 December. So we're about to see a big, um, a huge wave of momentum in the in the health sector. And I think, you know, it, one thing will build on the next, it'll snowball, um, and hopefully that will really give us the lift. And, you know, we, we will do what we can. We will take action in areas where we can, if it's necessary. Um, but, you know, I, I'm not, I'm not um, despondent or, or downbeat about it. I think we're definitely moving in the right direction. Mm. Yeah, so. And I think um, Mr. Turnbull, our Prime Minister, is creating a very good climate for very angry people to respond, <laughs> as far as I can see politically. <laughs> yeah, well, the, cuts, the federal cuts to health have been extraordinary. Yes, you know, yes. Just billions of dollars. And, and people may not feel the pinch yet, but when they feel that pinch, they will be deeply unhappy. You know, um, yeah, There's got to be a kickback to, to this kind of austerity and neoliberal agenda. Well, yes. There is one at some point. It's it's getting very pointy, I'd say, in Australia. And I think we've been lucky because of our position in the GFC Mm. and how we came out of that. But we are going to get to a point soon where it becomes a bit uglier, uh, and then there'll be a response, I'm sure. Mm. Okay, so the Code Blue campaign will go on for a little longer. Um, Do you see an end in, in, in sight? Well, um, we are really starting to get frustrated, I will say, because we were ready to commence bargaining uh, in early September and the government, the Andrews government, put us on hold um, and really the, the outcome they're looking for first is the nurse's outcome. Um, and once that lays the, the foundation, then, then they want to deal with the other unions in health. Um, to us, you know, that, that's not the way we operate. We're not going to sit back and wait for, for one union to, to take the lead, etc. So... So we've been frustrated with the delays, um, but we will just keep pushing. Um, you know, this government also has a policy of no retrospectivity, which means, of course, you're missing out on, on months of back pay. So mm-hmm. every day it's delayed. You know, we're increasingly frustrated, as are our members. Um, so you know, very soon we need to, uh, to look at um, doing what we can in terms of industrial action and and really ramping up the campaign. Mm. And you're actually sitting in a very, very strong position, just looking at the list of um, professionals who are members of your um, association, you know, uh, occupational therapists, physiotherapists, speech therapists, welfare workers, youth workers, family support consultants, community development workers. There's a whole list of very important allied um, health uh, teams of people out there. And it's coming in... in 
at the same time as NDIS being um, implemented, and they are going to be professionals who are going to be vital in the implementation of the NDIS. So that's going to be a crux, or what do you say, a bit of a clash if they, if if you guys go on, or you know, do take a national action, that's going to be interesting to watch because then, then it'll affect the NDIS implementation as well, wouldn't it? Well, the NDIS is a, a, a bit of a bambi, really, to be honest. It, it's, it's almost a way of um, creating this wonderful fig leaf of we're throwing all this money at, at disability services, etc. But really, under, underlying the whole thing is this attempt to corporatise um, big parts of the healthcare sector. That's right. It's all going to be privatised from what I understand. Well, and community health is going the same way, so we have real concerns about the way it's rolling out. Um, and, you know, at this point, um, we're, we're looking at the public sector, but we will start negotiating our community health agreement uh, very shortly again, and it'll be more relevant there. And, um, you know, we have members, of course, in disability, so, you know, in that sector, it'll be particularly relevant for us. But, you know, the NDIS and, and the way it's been organised is mm. very disappointing. Yes, yes, yes. But anyway, good luck with your Code Blue campaign. Hope you get a good victory. Um, and, uh, you know, hopefully you can keep us updated about what's going on. I'd, I'd be very happy to. Um, thanks for having me on. It's been a great pleasure. That was Craig McGregor, <coughs> the Secretary of VAPA. Now, unintentionally, today's program is all focusing on health and um I hope you're enjoying it nevertheless. You don't, you rarely get, um, an hour of, um, health issues being discussed. Now, in relation to the Code Blue stuff, um, on the 5th of April, that's the Tuesday coming, VAPA members are now having a, um, the, the highlight how prehistoric and outdated their wages and classification structures are. And we'll have a sharp, short, sharp and fun media event, um, in an event that accommodates kids, um, the family. It's a family affair, really. That's on the Tuesday at uh, 12.30 p.m. at Royal Children's Hospital, Nature Playground, the corner of Gatehouse and um, Gatehouse Street and Flemington Road in Parkville, <coughs> organized by the Victorian Allied Health Professional Association. So if um, you want to have a fun afternoon, that's one to look at if you're free. The other... Uh, event related to health that's coming up is a May Day forum in a month's time on the 30th of April. No, sorry, that's the, um, the 3rd of May. I beg your pardon. 3rd of May, it's a Tuesday at 6.30 p.m. at the Multicultural Hub. That is a commemoration of 30 years of the nurses' strike from 1986. In Irene Bolger, who was secretary at the time, will be addressing the seminar and I'll be speaking as an organiser at that time and Gwyneth Ampins who are the health and safety officer at that time will also be speaking and I guess in a sense this is hearing from the horse's mouth as opposed to other people analysing the lessons of the strike in 86 from the outside so if you want to hear the inside story here we go 3rd of May, Tuesday 6.30 Multicultural Hub which is opposite the Vic Market, centre of the city now, there are a couple of other announcements um, before we go on to Uncle Kevin. Uh, there is a rally on Sunday, that's tomorrow, at the Fed Square, a racist and fascist free zone. It's a year since 
<clears throat> the first demo of the so-called fascist group started off in Fed Square. So that's on this tomorrow. Um, they haven't given us a time, but I guess it'll be around 12 o'clock. And more importantly, no, it, they have given us time. I beg your pardon. It's 1 p.m. at Fed Square. So that's tomorrow, 1 p.m. If you are interested in participating in um, expressing your disgust of such racist groups being, um, you know, seen publicly and demonstrating and gathering support. Now, more importantly today, another health-related but also climate-related rally. Today, um, it's Save the CSIRO, and people who have been following the story will know that CSIRO is asking 350 climate scientists. I'll repeat that. CSIRO is axing 350 climate scientists. Malcolm Turnbull and his ministers are stripping CSIRO of the funding it needs to continue critical research with their latest track on climate science and environmental research, compounding an untold damage already done to the public science. So join the rally today at the State Library and um, the well-known corner of Swanson and Latrobe Streets where we have all our demos these days. 2 p.m. today, um, but people will be there, I guess, gathering from 12 onwards. So CSIRO rally against those cuts and this climate issue is an issue that I'll be talking to <coughs> uh, another guest at 8.30. Um, if you hang around, you'll, you'll get a bit more insight into more of this stuff. But for a bit of fun, there's a film... That's being screened. Mike Moore's, Michael Moore, another Michael Moore seems to be popular today in this morning's program. The movie's name is Where to Invade Next, and it is a fundraiser for Green Left Weekly Radio. Green Left Weekly, really. And it's on the 14th of April. And those who are interested in booking a ticket, there's $15 concession, 20 waged, and 30 solidarity. And it's being shown at the Cinema Nova. If you want to support this um, event, please go to Try Booking and type in Mike Moore and it'll come up and you just follow the prompts. So it's the 14th of April, 6.30. Uh, if you can um, book, in, uh, book in early so that they can get the numbers. Okay, again, on the 23rd of April, uh, we have, um, no, up to the 23rd of April, we have an exhibition on 3CR. And let me play you that announcement might be better. Here we go. If People Powered Radio exhibition is on now, get along to Gertrude Contemporary Gallery and enjoy this exciting collaboration. The exhibition features recordings, technological hardware, photos, ephemera and newly commissioned artworks by local artists which frame and interpret the station's history of radical broadcasting. A series of live broadcasts are happening every Friday in April, direct from the exhibition space, talking sovereignty, troublemaking and music. Come and explore the politics of broadcasting, the experience of community and the station's radical history with Gertrude Contemporary Gallery and Art Space. 200 Gertrude Street, Fitzroy, Open Tuesdays to Saturdays from 11am. Exhibition finishes April 23rd. 
For more information, visit 3cr.org.au. And you are listening to 3CR Solidarity Breakfast, and this is Lalita taking you through till 9 o'clock. And we are pretty close to listening to Uncle Kevin. We have got just another minute. I thought I'd make another quick announcement, and an important one actually, about the TPP, Trans-Pacific Partnership. What a euphemism for robbing the people of more money. It is a public forum is um, being organized by uh, unions, community roundtable coalition, and so on. The website is tppaustralia.org. Now, the forum is on the 21st of April, which is a Thursday, at 7 p.m., Lower Melbourne Town Hall, Swanson Street. Speakers include Jed Carney, president of the ACTU, Jane Kez. Kelsley from New Zealand. Um, she's a New Zealand academic, TPP campaigner as well. And we have Calvin Thompson, the MP, retiring ALP member for Wills. That'll be interesting because the ALP does support the TPP. So a bit of a controversy, perhaps, who knows. And we also have Dr. Deborah Gleeson, another health person, Public Health Association of Australia. Something about health this morning in the air. So there are your speakers, Jed Kearney, ACDU President, Jane Kelsley from New Zealand, the campaigner against TPP, Calvin Thompson, a retiring LP member for Wills, and Deborah Gleeson, Public Health Association of Australia. And it will be on the 21st of April at 7 p.m. Lower Melbourne Town Hall. Now, one last announcement before we move on to Uncle Kevin is Socialism for the 21st Century, a interesting and a Amazing conference, actually, that's happening in Sydney um, between the 13th and 15th of May. The speakers include Mata Hanaka, Chilean journalist and writer, internationally recognized commentator on the revolutionary processes in Latin America today. Mike Lebowitz, leading Marxist scholar and author, Build It Now, Socialism for 21st Century. Ian Angus, a veteran of socialist and environmental movements in Canada, an international and edit editor of Climate and Capitalism, and a well-known eco-socialist, eco actually. And we have lots of speakers from the Asian area. We have speakers from East Timor, from Malaysia. Um, you also have someone from the Philippines. And, and of course, we have got people from uh, the Kurd uh, community talking about Rojava and the, and the progress made there. We have people from India, Radhika Menon, who works with rural, who is a political activist among rural workers and farmers in Europe. Dick Nichols, who we interview regularly on this program, will be presenting as well. So an amazing array of people uh, who will be turning up for this conference. So if you want to go, it's, um, let me look at the website. It's www all in one word, socialismforthe21stcentury.org. So let's go to Kevin Healy. 
Here we go. A week solidarity, Brecky Team Lister, when we've gone from bad to worse in the politically correct black armband extremism gone mad department. Proven by the fact that it takes a very serious attack on propriety and decency and all that makes True Blue Aussie a great country to turn Sydney shock jock. Well, that epitome of common good and decency, Alan Cordin Johns, red in the face, foaming at the mouth and screaming into the microphone. But who could blame Alan for near apoplexy this week when some historical revisionist extremists suggested Captain Cook didn't discover True Blue Aussie? Are they suggesting all those reputable history books are wrong? Okay, okay, there may have been the odd occasional Dutch person or French person sail by and make a few notes, but they didn't discover it. They didn't represent His Most Gracious Majesty, a king, as an aside, whom Byron, in a satirical response to a poem praising the king by the then poet laureate, described as that mad, 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 mad king. So Captain Cook did discover True Blue was he on behalf of that mad, 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 mad king. Because the same history books they're now trying to historically revise, okay, split infinitive but less awkward, the same history books made it patently clear True Blue Aussie was then terra nullius, as empty as the heads of these black armband politically correct revisionists. And do they seriously want us to question those history books? After all, what are they called? It's obvious. History books. History. So it's undeniable. It's just recording what happened, as reliable as the profound information we receive daily in the commercial media. To make it worse, they, don't, they not only want to denigrate poor old Captain Cook, they want to disparage him even further by suggesting Captain Cook and the subsequent Arthur Philip and the victims of that mad, 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 mad king's Her Most Gracious Majesty's home country poverty, who landed in 1788, invaded the place, replaced settlement with invasion. How can you invade Terra Nullius? They've gone mad. So we can't blame Alan Court in Johns for foaming at the mouth, suggesting we change, discover, change settlement with perfidious speak would divide the nation, cause divisions, Alan screamed. The Terranullius people and their ignorant, long-haired, commie, wooden-working-and-iron supporters preaching this anti-True Blue Aussie rubbish rubbish, nonsense, must recognise that non-division requires nothing more difficult of them than to accept that Captain Cook did discover True Blue Aussie and that the Terranullius people weren't here at settlement, that they weren't invaded. Accept this and we can remain a united country. They can continue to enjoy the great benefits that bestowed upon them by that mad, 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 mad king and his successors. Indeed, I am so angry, so incensed at this litany of lies posing as political correctness that I feel they deserve nothing less than capital punishment for treason against the crown, for the grossest ingratitude to those who have brought them from savagery and paganism to civilization and the one true God. I said bad to worse, or now... There's the worst bit, and to make it worse, worse, from a caring business class politician.
The member for Macmillan down in Gippsland, named by the settlers, says we should change the name for no better reason than Angus Macmillan is honoured as one of the great settlers, slaughterer of more terribilious people than almost anyone else. So-called massacres when we're talking terra nullius. In other words, how can you massacre terra nullius people who aren't even there? And if he found a few thousand who shouldn't have been there, he simply corrected the historical anachronism they were trying to establish. We should honour Angus for upholding history. How could he be accused of slaughtering people who didn't exist and who didn't exist even more after he got through with them? To make matters worse, 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 this terrenullius person down there, Pauline Dernan, wants to name it Gunai Kurnai. Imagine the experts trying to say that on election night. Gunai Kurnai, the name of the local terrenullius people wiped out by Angus, or, or as near to as he could. Imagine a more insulting manner of rubbing salt into. At least the caring business class police suggest it should be called Monash, after a train killer who did most of his train killing on the other side of the world in other invasions that weren't invasions and weren't settlement either, but protecting us from the hordes who want to come here. Next thing we know, these terrenullius black armband politically correct revisionists will want to suggest that our national hero, Captain Cook, who discovered this country, and Arthur Phillip and the starving bread-stealing villains who settled this country, were the first no-proper-papers queue-jumping illegal boat people. Bad to worse, 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 worse. Any wonder a sensible, caring business class politician, that epitome of balance and reason, Corey St. Barnyard, recognises the caring business class party is careering to the left, forcing him to contemplate forming a party or political entity to the right of the caring business class party. Although, I would have thought he, he could just join the Socialist Party. Well, the careering to the left is serious, perhaps unstoppable, when it's led by the leader, big supremo Malcolm Tunnebull himself, explaining this week's thought bubble. Let the states impose an income tax over and above Malcolm's income tax. Now, this isn't as bad as it seems. We're talking income tax on those who work for an income, so it hopefully won't necessitate spending on expensive tax lawyers and advisers by those who don't work for an income. And then when this week's, or, or this day's, because they seem to be regular, thought bubble becomes a decision bubble, thankfully so far Malcolm is avoiding decision bubbles, becomes, then Malcolm and the Canberra team will stop funding public schools altogether acknowledging their responsibility is to their caring business class, handing all the taxes raised to educate the dear little children to the very dear, very expensive little children. The state aid debate, the long-haired, greeny, commie, politically correct lot, arguing if people want to start their own schools to preach their own philosophy or religion, then they have a right to, but no right to any public funding given the state provides a free education. Well, thanks to the other schools, free education is a bit of a stretch these days, but the state aid debate has now gone full circle. It's now the state public schools that don't deserve a cent of parents' taxes. That's right and proper. That is politically correct. 
I've been trying to avoid it, but the evil unions remain out of control. Poor old BHP for bloody huge profits, polluter, wants a sensible rewrite of their agreement with unions. See, caring employers have a right to change binding long-term agreements, whereas if evil unions try to, they can be fined and jailed. Well, quite properly, it's the law, but in this case, the bloody unions are opposing bloody huge profits, polluters, most reasonable changes to their wages and conditions. In case we were wondering, BHP doesn't want to increase wages and improve conditions. Just thought I'd clear that up. And the financial experts on the financial pages of our media make it clear this shows just how unreasonable unions are trying to crucify their bloody huge profits polluter employer. And worse, while they need to cut wages and conditions, the bloody unions have lodged an application for a $30 wage rise for those on minimum pay. Thankfully, Chamber of Profits Supremo Innes Will Pox on the workers talked sense. A wage rise in an uncertain economic climate would cripple caring employers. But that's not what he cares about. Those with low-pay employment would prevent the unemployed from being employed. How selfish. Low-paid workers would be attacking themselves, showing Innes and the caring employers always put the interests of workers first. Selfless altruists. On caring altruists, over in the US of, they're considering allowing delegates to the Republican Convention to carry guns. Surely there's no argument against it unless they want to undermine their own basic argument about the constitutional liberty, freedom and democracy right to bear arms. It's their inalienable God-given right. Allowing delegates, and for once, we'd have to agree it's a great idea. After all, when they announce the winner, the other blokes, sorry, the other guy's supporters, can exercise their constitutional freedom and bang, bang. Then when the other guy claims victory, the first guy's lots can knock him off. Win-win. And Donald Trump or the workers could oversee them shooting any evil, lascivious woman seeking an abortion. Sorry if I sound angry this morning, but like Alan Court in John's, I get so incensed, and I'm sure you do, listener, we get so incensed at this political correctness rubbish. I mean... And finally, next thing they'll be saying, there used to be Palestinians in Zion just because it used to be called Palestine. Political correctness is going mad. Good morning. Good morning, Uncle Kevin, for that wonderful contribution. I've got a frog in my throat this morning. Keep bothering me. Okay, listeners, we are going to go to an interview. Uh, We're a little bit... Uh, short of time, but it's um, an important one. We will be talking to Margarita Windich, who is a long-term feminist, climate activist, and a member of Socialist Alliance. She teaches at the Victoria University. Uh, She teaches uh, community services and development. So she would like to update us on the latest development in climate change and also talk about how is it that this issue of climate change affects women more than men as well? So here we go. Morning, Margarita. 
Good morning. Welcome to 3CI and thank you for waking up and talking to us this early in the morning on a Saturday. <laughs> no problem. Okay, Margarita, you are interested very much in updating us um, in relation to the climate change issues. I know that you know recently we've had a couple of announcements. One was that we've had the hottest February on record and this morning there was an announcement saying that this is the hottest March on record. So take it away, Margarita. Yeah, look, I've done some research into um, heat waves, especially urban heat waves and social vulnerability. And I think the latest figures that we got from NASA um, also show us that we've had unprecedented temperatures already in February and March this year. And that's come on the back of 2015, having been the hottest year on record, where we've had temperatures that eclipsed, you know, all other years. So in a way, what we've seen now is the 10 last years have been, you know, gradually getting hotter. And the temperatures this February in 2016 have been 1.9 degrees over pre-industrial levels. That's mm. really quite unprecedented. And in fact, that's actually quite uh, alarming. Yes. And then we've already had a heat wave in Victoria, you know, in early March. We had a heat wave where the temperatures were over 9 degrees above average and we had the hottest night ever recorded on record for March, which was close to 28 degrees Celsius. So that actually like, was a big warning to a lot of climate scientists and what it does, it actually just shows how the kind of new agreement that was made in Paris in COP21 in November in 2015 is completely useless actually utterly useless and in no way addresses the needs of nature in order to kind of hold the potential devastating consequences of climate change. And what do you think was left out in that COP21 agreement that is so vitally important to people around the world? Well, I guess, I mean, what we've known is that as we are going, the emissions have not... I mean, the key thing is we need to reduce emissions. You know, we have to reduce emissions. We have to bring down carbon. And as we are going, emissions will escalate to 2030. So that's another 15 years. And the key thing that Paris didn't do is there was actually no legally binding targets to cut emissions. I Mm. mean, and that is just incredible. A lot of people call it copper. It was a major, major cop-out, and especially of industrial nations. There's no extra money to address climate change in developing nations. There's no money for climate repatriations. What we're saying is that a lot of the industrialized nations were actually responsible for climate change. The poorer countries are paying the price um, devastatingly, but there's no kind of recognition of that. There's no major push to leave fossil fuels in the ground and there's still carbon trading mechanisms which we know based on a kind of, you know, the free market have actually not worked. So in a way what the COP21 agreement does, it keeps us on track for a three degree warming and we know that this is absolutely catastrophic. Hmm. Now, the the problem with this uh, agreement at, at Paris is that they have actually ignored the the call by the developing nations, especially the low-lying nations, and Bangladesh is the lowest-lying land in the world, and it's been affected by so much of flooding over the last, you know, century, really, not even decades. Um, and, of course, we have the Pacific Islands. So those are those countries, you think... Um, 
you know, trying to do something? Have you heard anything that, that they are doing constructively to try and address this issue? Because it's, it's, it's a matter of life and death for them, isn't it? Oh, absolutely. It's absolutely a matter of life and death. I mean, I think they've fought extremely hard under very difficult circumstances. I mean, we've seen in the past when countries even like Bolivia, who stood up to the bullying of the US and Australia and other industrialized nations, they've been punished for basically putting forward, you know, um, um, basically targets of below 1.5 degree warming. They've been punished. They've had eight budget cuts. We know that Australia has been a massive bully in the past also in these agreements, threatening, you know, particular nations that if they push for a below two degrees Celsius warming, that that could impact on their relationship with Australia. So I guess maybe, I mean, I, I, I don't know details, but it seems to me that some of these nations have probably become reasonably despondent and fair enough to try and get better deals through these um, these international, um, you know, conferences like the COPs. But I know that a lot of these countries are trying to do as much as possible on the ground, you know, where they're having community initiatives around uh, renewable energy, uh, where they're trying to build as possibly, you know, seawalls like in some of the South Pacific Islands. So there's lots of stuff happening on the ground because, you know, when you organize people, ordinary people, they tend to come up with very good solutions because they're not affected by profit but basic survival. Mm. Um, but that doesn't necessarily filter through into our mainstream media or into these big, you know, um, big, 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 big um, conferences. And we do, we've also seen people actually taking quite radical direct actions in a lot of countries to try and push some of their governments to actually take climate change more seriously. Mm. I think the, 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 the key thing is that the... Um fact that's missed by these first world nations who've got who can't see past the tip of their nose is that if this emission levels continue you will have countries that drown and they're going to end up with another few million people who are going to be climate refugees and that's going to create a massive issue look at what's happening in europe and how are we going to treat these people put them in naru put them in manas that's exactly right and we know i mean there are some links that haven't been made also with the civil war in Syria, you know, that began five years ago with a massive drought that occurred before there over a few years. Mm. So, I mean, we do know that the effects of climate change related uh, disasters, which could be floods, droughts, all of that, have a massive impact of people's, you know, quality of life, food production, all of that. So, I mean, we can expect more desertification, which means people have to migrate. We can expect, like you talk about, more floods, sea level rise, again, migration. It affects food production. And we can expect, like in countries like Australia, also more intense heat waves, which also leads to increased deaths of people. So the consequences are extremely stark. But we do know most of the countries that are based on a free market system, they don't work on short term. They only work, I mean, they only work on short term solutions, yeah. which makes sure guarantees the existence of the free market and higher profits, profits right. you know, for, mm. for, for the people with power. So, um, and I think a lot of what stops them still from looking at the necessary alternatives of, of renewable energy to bring down emissions is because they haven't worked out how they can control that market and make money from it. Mm. So a couple of questions. One is, 
basically a statement actually what I find criminal uh, being a person who's come from one of those developing nations I find really criminal is the fact that it's the first world nations that actually use or have a, a larger uh, uh, what do they call it the climate print the emissions print mm-hmm. footprint than these developing nations and yet it's the developing nations people from the developing nations who are going to pro- pay the price for the actions of the people in the first world that's the first point I want to make um, the, the, the next thing I want to talk about is, you know, one of your favorite subjects, and you've done a thesis on it, how it af- particularly affects women. Yeah, look, I, like, I mean, I, I think your point is extremely valid around the impact on, 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 on developing nations, and I guess that's been, you know, around the whole history of colonialism, you know. Mm. Uh, you know, um, uh, underdeveloped countries have been starved of resources. You know, genocide has been committed to fuel. And I think that's an important thing, too. The whole colonial kind of air, uh, um, enterprise mm. was actually based on ripping, you know, resources out of, of the colonized countries. And it is precisely this kind of um, colonial drive that fueled the industrialization of Europe and the industrial revolution which we can say was the kind of birth of industrial capitalism and industrial capitalism is very much responsible for our you know uh, our human induced climate change because it's so based on fossil fuel energy consumption Mm. and and it's this rapacious appetite for growth and profit which now has also been, also been globalized so we mean that system which we know is counter ecological in its principles right. really has mm. now been globalized so you know that that's a big thing we need to take into account and and women are disproportionately affected precisely because women are discriminated under our under capitalism and women discriminated that means they have less power they're generally poorer and that is, these are some of the key risk factors to be negatively affected on climate, of climate change. And we know that, for instance, my, my, my work focuses very much on urban heat waves and social vulnerability. And women are also disproportionately affected by heat waves. We have more women die of heat waves and more women that experience health issues through heat waves. And people think, well, how is that possible? Well, it's possible because really heat wave disasters are not predominantly natural, yeah, yeah. That, and that means unavoidable. They actually, the, the disasters are pretty much, you can say, socially constructed. And what that means is, well, you know, everybody can feel a heat wave, but who pays the price or who has a higher burden is very much related to the social conditions. Mm-hmm. So knowing that women live longer, is, is definitely an effect because older people are more affected, but it's predominantly the fact that women are generally also poorer, which has a very big impact on heat wave mortality. Yes. So if you're poorer, that often means you have higher health risks. Uh, you live in housing that's not very well insulated. You probably live in a suburb too with less greenery, you know, which increases the heat in, in a city. And that are all key risk factors for women be dying, more women actually dying in a heat wave that otherwise would have another 10, 15, 20 years left of their lives. So there's, there's a real kind of gendered and also class impact when it comes to who dies in heat waves. Mm. 
And I can tell you, being of menopausal age, I am getting heat rashes. <laughs> just a list of problems. But I tell you, menopause is not compatible with heat waves. <laughs> the been, that's exactly right. So, so imagine, like the, the other interesting thing is, I mean, we live in a time where there's more people, first time ever in human history, more people living in cities compared to the countryside. Right. And we know that heat waves are actually more severe in urban environments because there's none of that kind of buffer of greenery and green space available that actually keeps temperatures down. So big cities, and like I said, okay, my study focused on on industrial nations, but we also know big cities uh, like in India or different countries are more vulnerable to extreme heat waves because of the density of living, the lack of urban environment, uh, urban green space, and just the, the, the build-up environment. So in some ways, um, I think that what we can say too is that in a way what we see with, with heatwave disasters is that it's actually we can see the role of the state coming also out in constructing the risks of people in urban environments. Because if we had a state or governments that actually took climate change the impact seriously that had good mitigation and adaptation strategies, we would have much better living conditions. We would have better housing. We would have more green space, all of that, which would then reduce the risks of people dying in these disasters. Mm. That's an interesting point um, in relation to the city, uh, Margarita. I just want to make a quick announcement before we continue. Sure. Um, if you've just tuned in, you're listening to 3CR, Solidarity Breakfast, and we're in discussion with Margarita Windich, who is updating us on the latest climatic issues. Now, the, the, the thing I want to raise with you is it's really interesting that the urban um, environment where the heat is much, much more intense than in, in uh, country areas or bush areas where there's more greenery. But the, the, the other aspect of that is that People use more air conditioning because it's hotter, and that means you're drawing more from the the grid, and that means you know there's there's, there's that uh, um, flow-on effect because you, if you trace it back and back, in the end you're using much more power, and that also then creates more emissions because we create power from coal, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. so that I- contributes even further to the emissions. <laughs> That's a very, very important and interesting point you've made because I also looked at adaptation and the use of air conditioning and public cool spaces, yeah? Mm. So, and what, what some of the research has found is that, I mean, we do know that um, one of the um, best ways to, to protect yourself in a heat wave is to stay cool. Mm. I mean, that's, that's a reality because there's only so much uh, that our bodies can cope with when it comes to heat. There's a real biological limit to heat in, 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 in humans. That's right. So we have a couple of choices, which are, of course, you have the broader changing of environment, you have the, 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 the houses, the built houses, but unless we have, the, until we have, you know, um, very um, well-developed housing, what do people do? What do people do to protect themselves against heat? As you suggested, using air conditioning, especially from energy that comes from coal-fired power stations, is increasing our emissions. Mm. And it doesn't necessarily also do deal with the real issues that are underlying uh, heatwave vulnerability. What it does is, so, so there's some of the studies that have come out. If people use like private air conditioning in little flats, definitely increases 
greenhouse gas emissions. But a lot of older people, especially people that have, you know, lower socioeconomic um, backgrounds, do not use them because electricity costs are so high. That's right. So they might have the appliances, but they don't use them because it's too expensive. Um, other studies have shown that some level of adaptation is actually healthy. We should not just, you know, try and um, and, and, and use air conditioning, but, but see how well we can de- adapt our body to some level of increased heat and use old school mechanisms like wet towels, you know, making sure our windows and blinds are down, all of that. But what air conditioning doesn't do is actually reduce one of the key risk factors of dying in a heat wave, which is also social isolation. And we have more and more people, older people especially, that are terribly socially isolated. So that brings me to my point of actually trying to look, instead of individual solutions, to kind of collective solutions, Mm. which are public kind of cool spaces, cooling centers, such as, you know, there could be a community health center that people know they can easily access. There could be transport going there. It's culturally appropriate in terms of food there. They could bring their pets. And it could recreate a sense of community. It could recreate this idea of looking after each other, sharing experiences and socially connecting, which is also a very important factor in good health outcomes. And we don't have enough of these places. That's one of the big issues because our government, again, you know, neoliberal kind of mindset doesn't think about the need to invest in kind of collective uh, well-being. So that, that, that's a really big issue. What people are told is, you know, if your house is too hot, go into a shopping mall. <laughs> go yes. into some, you know, Hoyt cinema. Well, people mightn't want to spend money. They mightn't want to see a crap movie. Yeah. Um, and then especially if you're older and maybe homeless, a lot of people get kicked out of this, you know, um, commercial spaces, which are actually quite hostile spaces. Yes. So there's a real need to do further research, but on how can we best create these kind of communal spaces that become a kind of oasis during heatwave, but can also be educational. They can do health checkups. They can reconnect people with the community. So we can really have a kind of healthier community that protects people from heatwaves, but actually have a kind of, you know, a, a, a better way of living, I would argue. Yes, your um, teaching portfolio, community services and development is really coming through, Margarita. That's wonderful to hear. <laughs> Thank you so much. And um, I think we made the right connections there. And I think neoliberalism obviously is putting more and more pressure on the very living standards, the very communal um, society mm-hmm. we should be living in. It's, it's just not happening. And then you, you hit the nail on the head. You know, it, it is the government is a system that is causing all these problems. Um, so I'll thank you very much for being available so early in the morning. Is there anything else you want to say before we finish up the interview? Look, all I want to say is that people, um, people, you know, um, check out what's happening around the climate front, but also any, you know, like opportunities to, to really um, get active around issues that are, you know, like point towards an alternative to our neoliberal structure, which is very, you know, detrimental to our climate, but also good human existence. So, you know, people are not active yet. Get active. Yes. Thank you so much, Margarita. Pleasure. Take care. Bye. Bye-bye. Thank you, Margarita. That was very um, informative. And... 
the basic message is get active. And I think in, in a year where elections are due, um, I think we owe it to ourselves and our neighbours to do something concrete about this issue and put demands on political parties that should be addressing people's issues and not only profit issues, and we all know all about that. So we are heading towards the end of the program. I just want to repeat a couple of announcements which are really important in relation to this very climate thing. That is the CSIRO um, cutbacks of 350 climate scientists, um, and that's at 2 o'clock the State Library today. So please, um, if you want to support this issue, do go and um, let the government know what your views are. And, of course, tomorrow there's another uh, demo at Fed Square. Those are interested in opposing that fascist um, development or group's development um, should go there if you're interested. And, of course, there's the Code Blue Health Workers um, Fun Activity on the 5th of April. And don't forget, in relation to health, the um, 30 years of nurses uh, strike commemoration on the 3rd of May at the Multicultural Hub at 630 so to round up, let's thank um, Michael Moore, who was who the CEO of the Public Health Association of, Victoria, of Australia, who's about to come, become the world um, leader in the Public Health Association, which will be interesting so we can follow him up later and get an international view on the sort of issues you're talking about. That's preventative care and, and proper Funding of healthcare, public healthcare is, is uh, the vital issue he was talking about. And of course, let's thank, um, Craig McGregor, who is the secretary of the Victorian Allied Professional, Professional Association. And, um, Uncle Kevin Healy, we can't forget Uncle Kevin Healy. And thank you so much, Kevin. That was good. And especially on the issue of invasion versus settlement makes my blood boil, but that's another story. And last but not least, Margaret Windich, who brought us up to date with what's happening in the climate change arena and what to expect and what are the alternatives for people. And if you want to get active in your local climate um, change or emission-reducing groups, um, I'm sure every, every um, suburb has some sort of activity going on. Now, the other issue I wanted to um, remind people about is a lot of the Solidarity Breakfast information is available on 3CR, of course. It's broadcasted, and you can listen to it on tap anytime you want. And we also have a website, all the W's, solidaritybreakfast.org. Um, if you put that in, you'll find things that we have um, been following for a long time, and a lot of it is in also um, like Noah Bessel's interviews, and we also have um, Humphrey McQueen. His papers are also uploaded onto that site, and um, I've been a little slack this month, but I will do that today, uh, today or tomorrow, and the latest uh, info, which he has lots of material, photocopied material that he can post on that you can have a look at and read in, at your leisure. Now, before I go, let me say that Asia-Pacific Current is about to come on, and let's um, go to a song so that they have time to come in and take over. And I'm going to play Phil Oaks. And thank you so much for listening to Solidarity Breakfast. Um, next week, Annie McLaughlin and Kim will be um, at the helm. I shall be back in two weeks' time.
So here we go. Have a good day, listeners.